You're listening to Oh No Lit Class. Mostly dead authors, fresh takes. Ruining required reading, one book at a time. the podcast that puts the fun in fundamentally misinterpreting the author's intent. I'm Megan. Thought we were going with authorial. That still doesn't sound like a word, so... I'm RJ. And th- this is the show. <laughs> Did you want to start again, loser? <laughs> no, why? It's, this is the show. Right. Today we are going to be discussing James Baldwin and his novel, If Beale Street Could Talk. So in relation to Sesame Street, where's Beale Street? In New Orleans or, or potentially Memphis. Yeah, I only know a couple streets. I know Sesame Street, yeah. Beale Street, Evergreen Terrace. <laughs> that's about it. Yeah. Route 66. Route 66. There you go. That's not really a street. That's a highway. No, you get your kicks on Route 66. Yes, you can You can get your kicks on. That doesn't make it a street that you're getting your kicks on it. You're not allowed to walk on highways. You should put your kicks on 66 then. Well, I don't, I don't think you're putting your physical kicks. You're, you're getting your kicks, which I always thought sounded really weird. Get your kicks on Route 66. Like, are you... Are you getting dick sucked. Yeah, you're getting your dick sucked on Route 66. Yeah, you do some face sitting. Why Route 66? It's not Route 69. I didn't say you reciprocate. I'm just saying it's weird. I don't know. It's always seemed weird to me. Because it's the um, devil's number. <laughs> get your kicks on Route 666. Yeah. That's got to be the name of like a strip club off of Route 66. Sex 66. Boo. Anyway, Beale Street, James Baldwin. James Baldwin was a novelist, poet, playwright, and an ardent social activist that is largely considered one of the most important writers of the 20th century, just like full stop, let alone one of the most important African-American writers or queer writers. And he's also, up until now, a big embarrassing blind spot in my personal literary canon. Um, I was never assigned any James Baldwin at any point in my absurdly long literature-related education. And when I got to grad school, I was still not assigned any Baldwin to read, but there were like quotes from him taped to the doors of all my professor's offices. And basically everyone I knew there had already read him and like idolized him. And so rectifying this error has kind of been a long time coming. <laughs> RJ, did you ever read any Baldwin in school? I'm the one who told you to read this. Yeah, well. <laughs> I'm trying to save your white soul. Except you actually had never read If Beale Street Can Talk. Oh no, not specifically this book. I've read Giovanni's Room and then assorted short stories and poems of James Baldwin. So you're familiar with him yeah. in a way that I was not. And you'd already watched the movie, but this, we'll, get, we'll get to that this later. This is true. I expand my mind and my soul. If Beale Street Could Talk is significant as it is the first Baldwin novel to focus exclusively on a black love story and is also the only novel he wrote that's narrated by a woman. But before we could get into that, we before we could get into Baldwin talking like a lady, uh, we have to get into Baldwin himself and RJ. What's up? Why don't you tell us about James Baldwin? James Arthur Baldwin was born August 2nd, 1924 and died December 1st. 1987. Given that we 
South Florida community. Have the Super Bowl on the horizon down here. We, the South Florida community? Yeah. Are you and I the the South Florida community? We are. And now the Super Bowl starring the attractive and delicious Jimmy G, who better for us to talk about today than Jimmy B, which I am sure, even though it is not written down, is what all the Baldwin fans called him back in the day. Yeah, they called him Jimmy B. Yep. See, I thought you were going to take advantage of the weird nickname thing, because the main characters in the story have nicknames that don't correspond to their names in any way, shape, or form, so I thought you were going to riff off of that, but nah, it's okay. You're getting lazy. You're getting complacent. What do you do with Jimmy? Or James? Well, I don't know. We got a character named Clementine who goes by Tish, and a guy named Alonzo who's called Fonny. Alfonso. Oh, no, his name's Alonzo. Oh, it's close to Fonzo. No, it's not. Yeah. Uh, it's not Alfonso. It's Alonzo, and he goes by Fonny. Phonics. Hooked on Phonics. You're hooked on something. I mean, I call him Jabs. <laughs> hey, James Arthur Baldwin. Jabs. Jabs. I'll do Jabs if you want. Hags. No, not Hags. Jabs. <laughs> all right, on the fly here, Jabs. <laughs> you could call him Jimmy B. I was just making a note as all. Jimmy B from the streets. Hmm, that's problematic but continue he's jimmy b in the streets james in the sheets jabs in the sheets (laughs) that's what he does all right jimmy b was born in manhattan the center of the universe at least according to those born in the five boroughs mama baldwin was emma burdish jones and biological daddy baldwin was well we actually aren't all that sure apparently he was a drug addict and not anyone that mama baldwin really wanted to keep around so jimmy b was raised in harlem by mama and her husband david baldwin who was a preacher. This a, would, a much better influence. <laughs> oh, this would generally be a trade-up in my book, but we'll talk about that. Oh, no. In total, the couple would have eight children together. Jimmy B. would write of this man, who was technically his stepfather, as being his father. As such, I shall anoint him in all of my powers as Daddy Baldwin. <laughs> all of your considerable power. <laughs> Apparently, Daddy Baldwin, however, wasn't all that good of a dad. No. Especially to little Jimmy B. In fact, Jimmy wrote later in life that it was clear his father treated him far more harshly than the other children. This drove Jimmy away from home as why would he want to be around a, at best, borderline abusive parent. So he spent a lot of time at the local library. It was free, safe, and he was a gifted child from fairly early on, so he enjoyed being surrounded by books. In 1937, his teachers already identified him as gifted, and he published his first article, Harlem, then and now, in the school newspaper, The Douglas Pilot. Even though teachers identified Jimmy's knack for writing and wanted to help foster those talents, his father was not all that happy about it. While in grade school, Jimmy wrote a play. Well, one of his teachers wanted to bring him to see a stage play and offered to pick him up and bring him one night. The problem was the teacher was white. So when the teacher showed up at Jimmy's house, Daddy Baldwin was not having any of it and was refusing to let Jimmy go to the play with the teacher. Mama Baldwin stepped in and said, quote, It would not be very nice to let such a kind woman make the trip for nothing. Later in life, Jimmy wrote about this episode, quote, It was clear during the brief interview in our living room that my father was agreeing very much against his will and that he would have refused permission if he had dared. The harsh treatment Jimmy faced was not just at the hands of his father either. When he was in his teens, he was abused by two New York police officers on multiple occasions. These incidents of racial harassment were retold in some of Jimmy's later essays. Daddy Baldwin died in 1943 from the same thing everyone seems to die of. No matter if you were a 17th century English writer 
or an abusive dad living in modern-day New York. Tuberculosis? Tuberculosis. How about that? Let this serve as a reminder for all you out there, starting your 2020. Get tested for TB and don't die. No one is safe from the Burke. Mono might be the kissing disease, and some mutant kind of flu might be all the rage in China. But tuberculosis, it's the real killer, especially in literary circles. If you are a writer, or your family member is a writer, and you've got tuberculosis, you may be entitled to compensation. You may be at risk. (laughs) Yeah, you're definitely at risk. Anyway, Daddy Baldwin was buried on Jimmy's 19th birthday. This also happened to be the same day as the Harlem Riot of 1943. During the riot, six people died and 600 people were arrested. In short, a pretty memorable birthday for a lot of the wrong reasons. Wait, was that Jimmy? Oh, it was... The day his father was buried. It was his 19th birthday. birthday and the... The day of the Harlem riots of 1943. A, that's a lot. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy's Notes of a Native Son begins with a retelling of that day. Growing up in Harlem was not an easy start to life, as Baldwin recounted later in life when discussing the obstacles he faced growing up. Quote, I knew I was black, of course, but I also knew I was smart. I didn't know how I would use my mind, or even if I could, but that was the only thing I had to use. Before graduating from school, Jimmy got to know County Colon. 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 Cohen? Colon. Colon? C-U-L-L-E. Okay, it's not like you were saying colon. (laughs) County Colon, who was a poet and a leading figure in the Harlem Renaissance at the time. Colon. 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 Sometimes you sound like you're saying Cohen. Colon. Colon. Like Edward Cullen. <laughs> Cullen pushed Jimmy to continue his education and his writing and to use that brain to help celebrate the culture of Harlem in innovative and positive ways. Jimmy had relationships with other local artists that helped inspire him as well. This included the painter Buford Delaney, who would paint Jimmy later in life. It was Buford who made Jimmy realize that it was possible for black people to be artists as well. It was during the mentoring relationship the two shared that Jimmy was working odd jobs in sweatshops to make ends meet that he began to write short stories and essays that were later collected together for Notes of a Native Son. Jimmy wrote of Delaney that he was, quote, the first living proof for me that a black man could be an artist. In a warmer time, a less blasphemous place, he would have been recognized as my teacher and I as his pupil. He became for me an example of courage and integrity, humility and passion, and absolute integrity. I saw him shaken many times and I lived to see him broken, but I never saw him bow. In 1944, when Jimmy was 20, he befriended some guy I had never heard of. Supposedly, he was an actor of some sort, Marlon Brando. Yeah, I don't don't know. The two became roommates for a bit of time and remained friends through the decades that followed. In short, no matter where you look in Jimmy's biography, the one constant is that he was surrounded by artists. And generally, they were artists who participated in many different arenas, either being writing, on canvas, or on the stage. It was that time in New York where everybody seemed to be somebody and everybody seemed to know somebody. I mean, you could say that was like 1920s through like, what, the 1980s in New York? No, it was that time. <laughs> New York, however, was not working out for Jimmy the way he wanted. He was growing apart from his native home. He was black, which meant he had to face a lot of prejudice already. And then in his late teens and early 20s, he began to realize that he was also gay. In public life, he would uh, be denied entry to restaurants, among other outwardly racial-tinged aggressions. In private life, he was ostracized for who he was and who he was attracted to and wanted to love, and also for being smart and artistic in some circles. There you go. He had, every, he had literally everything going against him. He was black. He was gay. He was too smart. Yeah, just like uh, 
the pianist, right? If I ain't black enough, and if I ain't straight enough, what good am I? <laughs> <laughs> the Oscar-winning film Green Book. Yeah, yeah, right. You oh, notice something between black artists back oh, in the uh, 20th Mahersh- century, huh? Mahershala Ali, you were the saving grace of that film. I guess it wasn't that he was straight enough, right? He wasn't black enough and he wasn't white enough. Yeah. Just couldn't belong in. Yeah, it really didn't have anything to do with whether... Well, it did have a bit to do with him being straight. Well, yeah, he wasn't black enough because... Well, because he was smart and fancy and played white people piano music and also because he was mad gay. But it's okay because him and Viggo Mortensen ate fried chicken together. It's true. Oscar winner. I wrote the scene where he folded the pizza in half and ate it like a... Like a cow's Academy Award-winning Fart Farley brother. I don't remember which Fairly Fart brother. Fairly brother. Whatever. Me, myself, and Irene co-writer. <laughs> the Green Book. Perhaps, and we'll get to this later on, might be more enjoyable than the film version of If Beale Street Could Talk. Mmm. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, technically, you did beat it. There's a lot to unpack there. <laughs> anyway, it's no surprise, then, that he decided to leave the U.S. for France where he believed he was going to be welcomed. France was more inclusive and a more progressive society in general. He would also spend time in Switzerland and Turkey. One thing that Baldwin was always worried about and cognizant of was being labeled as, quote, merely a Negro, or even merely a Negro writer. Having the experiences he had outside of the U.S. and writing about those experiences did help him at least lay those fears in his own mind, as he believed this would help him be defined more by his worldliness than anything else. The town that Jimmy called home was St. Paul de Vance. It's a small town in the French Riviera, in the French Riviera on the southeastern you coast. You nailed the town there. name. You couldn't say Riviera. <laughs> a small town in the French Riviera on the southeastern coast of France. That's also where he wrote If Beale Street Could Talk. It is. At the time of Jimmy moving there, the old historic town, supposedly one of, or was one of the oldest medieval towns of France, had a population of 1,400 people. Wow. Jimmy's home attracted a lot of well-known house guests, Ray Charles, Harry Belfonte, Nina Simone, Sidney Poitier, and Miles Davis. Davis said in his own biography of Jimmy, quote, I'd read his books and I liked and respected what he had to say. When I got to know him better, Jimmy and I opened up to each other. We became great friends. Every time I was in the south of France, I would spend a day or two in his villa in St. Paul de Vence. We'd get comfy in that beautiful big house and he would tell us all sorts of stories. He was a great man. And just like that, now I have proof. His friends called him Jimmy. I was literally just about to ask you, like, did he actually call him Jimmy or did you insert that? So I there proof. you go. That I sounds, am among his friends. That sounds so good. Like, that sounds like it was just a bunch of, like, really talented artistic people just having a big fucking sleepover in a French villa. Just the way he said that they got they got comfy. Then they got comfy. I don't know what that means. They, they sat down in their jam. Him and Ray Charles and Nina Simone, they all got sat down in their jammies. And I don't know, had pillow fights and just were were artistic together. I don't know. Maybe they all kissed. Oh, Ray Charles had to feel his way out of there. (laughs) (laughs) God damn it. (laughs) You know, the move was putting his finger on people's wrists, right? To know how fat they were. Oh, God, that wasn't... The things you remember are so weird. (laughs) 
Yeah. It's <laughs> a really fucking random thing to remember about Ray Charles. It's not wrong, but it's weird. <laughs> no fat chicks allowed, man. <laughs> Doesn't matter if he's blind. That is kind of weird. Like, you're blind. You can't fucking tell the difference. Yeah, you can. You put your fingers around someone's wrist. If it don't reach, your fingers don't touch. That's a no-no from big old Ray. So Ray, Ray Charles is a uh, no fat chicks allowed aside. Continue. <laughs> During his time in France, Baldwin became fluent in French. Can you imagine how hard that must have been in the days of yore before Duolingo or Rosetta Stone? God, French is such a hard language, which, I mean, you, you hear us struggle with it on the reg. And I took multiple years of French, but that mostly just proves that I'm really dumb. Most of Jimmy's works focused on the hardships he faced and saw others face due to their race, creed, religion, and sexuality. He also wrote about the uneasy relationship he saw between Christians and Muslims within the black community, including in relation to Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. While there are champions of Baldwin's works, there are detractors as well, who say that Baldwin never really paid mind to what the public readership wanted and instead wrote for himself, sometimes in very masturbatory kind of ways, which you read about. About dicks and coming. I was gonna say, do you mean do you mean masturbatory? I think in, in like, many senses of the term. In multiple senses of the word. His later works, including he did like to write about jerking off. His later works, including the focus of this episode, if Beale Street could talk, were written by Baldwin while he was living in France, being visited by all those famous folks. And even though Baldwin did spend most of his time in Europe after he left Harlem, he did return to the U.S. and he still was very invested in the politics of his homeland. When civil rights legislation was being debated in Washington, D.C., he went around the U.S. South to give speeches and lectures on how he saw the problem and the solutions he believed needed to be put in place. Baldwin saw himself as occupying the space between the muscular approach of Malcolm X and the nonviolent program being preached by MLK Jr. Baldwin generally advocated for socialism to take root in the U.S. Time Magazine said of Jimmy during this time, quote, there is not another writer who expresses with such poignancy and abrasiveness the dark realities of the racial ferment in North and South. James Baldwin's FBI files contains 1,884 pages of documents. Jesus. Which were collected from 1960 until the early 1970s. That material is more than 18 times the 110 pages the FBI collected on little old Ono Wiklas alum Truman Capote. Ah, the good old days of the FBI spying on gays. Just for being public figures, where does the time go? 18 times. Yeah. They, I guess that was because he was both gay and black uh, and, and socialist. Yeah, real dangerous. Oh, yeah. Talk about Malcolm X and MLK Jr., mm. who were also on FBI surveillance. No, no! What? No. And while Jimmy was seen as a prominent figure in the fight for civil rights and even was given a prominent role during the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, the event where MLK gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, Jimmy was generally kind of pushed towards the periphery of the group. At this point, Jimmy was not closeted, but he also was not open about his homosexuality either. He was disinvited from a number of events as the social rights movement was openly hostile towards homosexuals. I mean, you even had MLK giving sermons about how homosexuality was a mental illness that needed to be overcome. Not exactly the most accepting of stances. Mm. Don't get your gay all over my civil rights movement. These are, <laughs> these are the kind of interesting things that you run into when it comes to, like, intersectionality and stuff like that, where 
the example that like immediately pops in mind is like women's suffrage and how that was such a huge thing but then black women were largely like kept on the periphery of that that there was famous black uh suffragette and i can't think of her name right now but like she was purposefully like told by like white suffragettes be like don't come to the marches don't do this like you're gonna make us look bad and it's like that that kind of forced divide that only sort of hurts a movement in a similar here where it's like don't come to this civil rights speech or march because you're gay and that's gonna make us look bad in 1986 baldwin was was made a commander de la legion de honneur a commander of the Legion of Honor, the highest medal that could be bestowed upon a member of the public in France. Leave it to the French to overlook all the things many Americans were unable to. Everybody's a little bit gay in France. Yeah. Late in life, Jimmy developed stomach cancer. His body eventually succumbed to the disease on December 1st, 1987, at the age of 63 years old. In his final days, he was cared for by Fred Nall Hollis, an American painter from Alabama known simply as Nall. The two had been friends for a long time. Shortly before Jimmy passed, Nall told him, quote, Through your books, you liberated me from my guilt about being so bigoted coming from Alabama and because of my homosexuality. Baldwin replied, No, you liberated me in revealing this to me. In her eulogy for Jimmy titled Life in His Language, which was published in the New York Times, Toni Morrison wrote, You knew, didn't you, how I needed your language and the mind that formed it, how I relied on your fierce courage to tame wilderness for me. How strengthened I was by the certainty that came from knowing you would never hurt me. You knew, didn't you, how I loved your love. You knew. This, then, is no calamity. No, this is a jubilee. Our crown, you said, has already been bought and paid for. All we had to do, you said, is wear it. For the record, you know how I know Jimmy was a big deal? Because there was a postage stamp made to celebrate him in 2005. In hell! Not only did the stamp have his face on it, but on the peeling... What else would the stamp have of James Baldwin if not his face? The peeling paper of the stamp had his biography printed on it. How how fucking small was that font? Postage stamps are few and far between. And as I discussed before, the hallmark sign I look for to divide between who's famous and who's really famous. Never have I read there was a bio printed on the back about an author. So how about that? I need to know, like, how long was the biography? How small was the font? Like, let's just say, like, James Baldwin was an author, and then he died in 1963. As for all the talk about Baldwin's homosexuality, there is not much I found about his partners he had in his life. One person that most biographers write about is Lucian Harpersburg. Harpersburg. Burger. Harpersburger. What? Harpersburger. Lucian? L- Lucian Happer... Yeah, Happersburger. Jesus. Yeah. Lucian Happersburger. Jimmy was 25 when he met Lucian, who was 17 at the Ew. time. Apparently, the two were very hot and very heavy. Ew. But a mere three years later, Lucian married, get this, a woman. Oh, Ew. Betrayal. What kind of man marries a woman? That's pretty hetero, if you ask me. Pretty gross. <laughs> pretty hetero, bro. Don't erase bisexuality. Fucking normies. <laughs> Don't erase bisexuality. <laughs> Women are gross. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Gay or bust, man. K or bust. Yeah. Well, I guess you busted. <laughs> I haven't married no woman. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how about that? Oh, how about oh, that? Oh, See, I'm part of the fight. Oh, yeah. You're not marrying a man either. Even better. 
That really puts me in the real minority here. Yeah. Yeah, I'm on the front lines. Oh, yeah. yeah. Look, at, look at you. Yeah, fuck heterosexuality and homosexuality. <laughs> Do my own thing. You're so brave. You're my pretty puppy. I hate you. <laughs> Lastly, if Beale Street could talk, the focus of this episode, it was written in 1974 when Baldwin was 50. It was his 13th book. This book, despite what we will hear of the plot being a bit heavy, is considered to be a humanizing and or overall an optimistic book about relations within the black community and was celebrated at the time of its publication. So, Meg, what would the street say if it could, in fact, talk? Ah, stop stepping on me. I'm existing here. Yay, I'm a street. Stop walking on me here. Hello there, sports fans. It, it's, uh, I don't know, the Super Bowl is happening a couple days. Uh, it, it's here. That's going to be wild. Um, it's Megan. Yeah. I'm going to be scared to go really any further south than my house because of the Super Bowl. Um, I will live in fear. But you know who is a good antidote for that fear? Our wonderful, beautiful, amazing patrons who are like the star quarterbacks of the podcast because I know how football works because they are a big part of helping us keep the show running and going and paying for things related to creation of said show that's what quarterback does are they the maybe they're the running back the I don't mm, football including our newest patron Lauren Lauren Thank you. Take that football all up. I'm going to throw you the pass. No, that would make me the quarterback, wouldn't it? Fuck. And I would also like to make another just real quick exciting announcement. And that is that. So our next episode is our third year anniversary episode, which. But enough about that. Uh, On our Patreon at patreon.com slash Ono Lit Class, all of our patreon members who have pledged five dollars and above and anyone who pledges to five dollars and above in the month of february will be receiving an exclusive sticker and bookmark celebrating our three years doing this nonsense um i'll have a design up of the bookmark shortly and the sticker will be a surprise or maybe i'll do one or the other maybe i'll show you the sticker and the bookmark will be a surprise i'm not sure yet I've got one designed. I'm working on the other, but this is. I'll, I'll put them out on social media, obviously. But you're going to hear it here first. So to celebrate three years of this bullshit, anyone who pledges at the five dollar or above tier on our Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/OnoLitClass, and anyone who is also you know pledged there now and uh, maintains it will get this exclusive swag, which will be. A sticker and a bookmark celebrating three years that you'll never have the chance to ever get again because it won't exist. Ooh, exclusive. Yes. I don't know what this voice is. I should stop recording these late at night, but I probably won't. All right. Back to the show. Megan, out. So, Beale Street could talk as, as it would speak. So... The novel, as I stated previously, is narrated by a woman, and that woman, or girl, depending on how you define these things, is 19-year-old Clementine Tish Rivers. What's interesting about her narration, though, 
is that she narrates events where she is not present and also gets inside other characters' heads and states their feelings and intentions, not like she's guessing at them or was told them after the fact, but as a statement of fact, which is fairly weird because it makes her feel sort of almost omniscient in a way, and it's a weird contrast with her being this, you know, kind of naive teenager who's experiencing a lot of aspects of life for the first time, but the novel is written in such a lyrical dreamy sort of quality so it kind of works but it, it definitely makes defining the narration sort of difficult because you can't really quite say it's I mean it's first person narration but it's sort of free indirect discourse but it's not like jumping it jumps from characters heads but like never in their pers- like it is in their perspective like we get we get scenes that she is not present for that in characters that she never knew and will never meet and could not be explained to her and we get to know sort of all about them and their interior life and i'm not sure how to classify that but it is interesting so at the novel's outset tish is visiting her fiance 22 year old alonzo fonny hunt in prison for reasons yet unknown to tell him that she is pregnant fonny is happy but nervous and asks like what are we gonna do about it And Tish gives a pretty good reply. She's like, well, we can't drown it, so I guess we gotta raise it. Like, it's not sincerely. She's being jokey. But the the baby becomes kind of a ticking clock that they have to figure out a way to get Fawny out of prison before the baby comes. Like, he wants to be there as the baby is born. So far, all we know is that he's been jailed for a crime that he did not commit. Tish reflects bitterly on the justice system and how it's rigged against the black community at large. And she has a, you know, as I just discussed, like, She has a mental voice that is, like, far beyond what you would expect from a 19-year-old, and she delivers some pretty powerful, uh, lines, which, several of which I've I've saved for later, but I don't know, just with his writing, it it works. It doesn't work quite as well when it's translated to the screen, which, again, we'll get to. Anyway, the story's told in a non-linear fashion, drifting back and forth between the past and the present, as Tish goes home to tell her family that she's pregnant, while also talking about the first time she and Fawny interacted. Namely, that they got into a fight when they were six and nine, like a little playground scuffle, and she grabbed a stick to hit him in the face, but she didn't realize that the stick had a nail in it, and she gave him this huge, like, scratch, and then in retaliation, he spit in her mouth. As (laughs) folks do. And then they just became best friends. Set up a life of kinkiness. Ew. Wow. Um, <laughs> I, they, they basically were described afterwards as becoming each other's siblings. That We talk about the fact that Tish has a sister, Ernestine, but she doesn't have a brother. And Fawny has two sisters, but they don't like him very much. And so the thing is that they, I think they describe it as like they filled a need in each other's lives. And that doesn't make their sexual relationship as adults uncomfortable at all. <laughs> Not even a little. Not at all. Anyway, as I was saying, we learn that Fonny's family is split down the middle, with Fonny and his dad, Frank, on one side, and his mom and sisters on the other. His mom is Mrs. Hunt, and it is worth mentioning that all the parents are predominantly referred to by their first names. Frank, Fonny's dad, and then Tish's parents, Joseph and Sharon. But Mrs. Hunt is always Mrs. Hunt, and holy shit, she is just the worst. Um, we all know of Mrs. Hunt. Now we call them Karens. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Mrs. On, she's distant, which is obviously emphasized there with that we don't know her first name. She is sanctified, and with a capital S is how it's described. She's extremely hyper-religious. She's incredibly judgmental. 
and and she's just the worst. Fonny and Tish really bond as kids when the sanctimonious business hunt drags them both to church and like makes a weird show about being like the most holy, just just yelling yelling songs the loudest, being like, "Hey, hey, God, I love you the most." Not really necessarily because she does, but she wants everyone around her to see that, and t- she looks down on. Well, she looks down on Fonny, and she also looks down on Tish because she doesn't share this sort of religious fervor. And I also have clipped a very good quote that shows Tish's thoughts on God. And it's just, it's so fucking intense. It's so raw. Except now in my head, all I can hear is, Tell me all your thoughts on God. Which she does. Um, Quote, of course, I must say that I don't think America is God's gift to anybody. If it is, God's days have got to be numbered. That God these people say they serve, and do serve, in ways that they don't know, has got a very nasty sense of humor. Like you'd beat the shit out of him if he was a man. Or if you were. Like, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> That's heavy. Also, we get this weird description of how Fonny's parents have sex, and it's, it's just, cause like, it's detailed as, as kid Fonny telling this to kid Tish. And it's really weird because he's just describing this bizarre, angry sex that they have where his mom like lays down on the bed like she's exhausted and then screams at his dad to come give himself to the Lord. And then he screams back like, I am the Lord and I'm coming into you. So hetero. <laughs> and like it's it's symbolic and stuff, I guess, but gross. Two become one, Meg. So... Yeah, but they're they're, le- they're leaving room for Jesus. Oh, there's always room for Jesus. At some point, uh, Frank does tell her that she's spent so many years in the arms of that white Jew bastard, Jesus. <laughs> they have a great marriage. But conversely, so when Tish does come home from seeing Fonny in prison and break the news to her mother, father, and older sister, Ernestine, she is met with love and support. And it's really nice to see that. Like, they they make a a point of saying, you know, don't be afraid that we think that you're, like, a bad girl, that you're out there, like, getting pregnant, because we don't, because we know, like, you and Fonny love each other, and that you were planning on, like, getting married and stuff before he got imprisoned, and, you know, that we're gonna support you, and we're gonna get through this together. And it's just really nice to see that. Bad girls. Well, she's not a bad girl. Bad girls. (laughs) Just stop doing that. Uh, And that's clearly Baldwin's intent with this novel overall, to show that it's not just, like, a healthy love story between Tish and Fonny, who just, like, their love never fucking wavers for each other, with almost saint-like purity, which kind of toes the line a little bit there between, like, two people, two, two crazy kids in love, and, like, the symbolism isn't quite the word but it's like almost like they're allegorical figures or something like standing in just for healthy black relationships i don't know but yeah also that they have the strong support network in the form of tish's family who never gives up on either of them mrs hunt on the other hand is a different story joseph tish's dad invites frank mrs hunt and fonny's sisters over to their house to deliver the news and it does not go over well when they announce it you get this good quote and who asked mrs hunt is going to be responsible for this baby. The mother and the father, I said. Mrs. Hunt stared at me. You can bet, Frank said, that it won't be the Holy Ghost. <laughs> Very true. That guy ain't ever done shit for me. 
because they talk about like that Mrs. Hunt hasn't really been around to see Fonny at all, and she does this whole big show of like, oh, I'm I'm praying for my boy. I'm praying that the Lord will deliver him. I've also been running around up in town trying to get good legal counsel. Whereas it's Tish's sister who actually found the lawyer that's serving as Fonny's legal counsel. So again, with Mrs. Hunt, it's all for show. She doesn't give a shit about her son, and then. Mrs. Hunt, who I just, I literally cannot emphasize enough, is is just horrendous. She, she's Mrs. Cunt. Whoa. <laughs> she curses the baby to fucking die in the womb. She's like, may God, like, may the good Lord, like, shrivel the baby and that, like, bastard child inside of you. Which is a horrendous thing to say to a pregnant woman, especially when that pregnant woman is 19 and the baby that she's pregnant with is your grandchild. Everyone's like, dude, what the fuck? And then Frank knocks her ass on the ground. And I'm a little split on that because, again, that's a truly terrible thing to say, but I don't really think I could, like, condone how casually this violence is carried out. It's just kind of like, and then Frank smacked her ass and everyone was like, "Mm mm-hmm. Sometimes you just need a good old smack. No. Bing, bang, boom. No. Straight to, to the, the f- moon. Just the floor. <laughs> Watch down. I'm going to give you the view. Give oh. you to the moon. <laughs> uh, anyway, they all go to leave. And Mrs. Hunt and her daughter say more nasty shit about Fawny Tish and the baby. And then Ernestine, the most badass fucking sister ever, probably my favorite character, gets the rawest, most intense fucking monologue ever that I'm absolutely going to read here because just god it deserves it so quote ladies she said and moved to the elevator and pressed the button she was past a certain fury now when the elevator arrived and the door opened she merely said ushering them in but holding the door open with one shoulder don't worry we'll never tell the baby about you there's no way to tell a baby how obscene human beings can be and in another tone of voice a tone I'd never heard before, she said to Mrs. Hunt, Blessed be the next fruit of thy womb. I hope it turns out to be uterine cancer, and I mean that. And to the sisters, if you come anywhere near this house again in life, I will kill you. This child is not your child. You have just said so. If I hear that you have so much as crossed a playground and seen the child, you won't live to get any kind of cancer. Now, I am not my sister. Remember that. My sister's nice. I'm not. My father and mother are nice. I'm not. I can tell you why Adrian, that's one of the sisters, can't get fucked. You want to hear it? I can tell you about Sheila, that's the other sister, too. And all those cats she jerks off in their handkerchiefs and cars and movies. Now, you want to hear that? Sheila began to cry, and Mrs. Hunt moved to close the elevator door. Ernestine laughed and, with one shoulder, held it open, and her voice changed again. You just cursed the child in my sister's womb. Don't you ever let me see you again, you broken-down, half-white bride of Christ. And she spat in Mrs. Hunt's face and let the elevator door close. And she yelled down the shaft, That's your flesh and blood you were cursing, you sick, filthy, dried-up cunt, and you carry that message to the Holy Ghost, and if he don't like it, you tell him I said he's a faggot and he better not come nowhere near me. Preach. (gasps) Fuck. Keeping it 100, fam. Jesus Christ. This is, uh, this is cut out of the film version. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, well, you know. Yeah, no. Um, I could talk about Ernestine forever, though. 
Like, she's the one, like I said, who secures the lawyer for Fani. She's always a good big sister to Tish. She helps hold the family together. She's described as just, like, very strong and independent. And is also heavily implied to be gay. That They, they say that she was kind of unhappy as a child, and then when she was an adult, that she sort of, like, grew into herself. And Tish describes this as, she started wearing, like, she started reading more, and then she started wearing slacks. Like, that's a big thing, that she started just wearing pants all the time. That's a thing adults do. <laughs> Well, that she she started kind of stylizing herself in a more masculine way. And she at one point tells their mother that she will likely never marry or have kids. She's kind of like, don't expect that from me, even though she still, quote, like wants to be wanted. So there's there's a lot of subtext there. Anyway, Tish talks about how when they were teens, Fani was forced into a vocational school that was mainly meant to teach students to make, quote, shitty, really useless things saying that the children had to learn to use their hands because they were stupid, but instead he steals materials from the school with the goal of becoming a sculptor and an artist. And then there's another really good quote here. I know this is a lot of me just quoting, but like, here's the thing, guys. Spoiler alert. This book's fucking great, and I really loved it. As I tell my students all the time, you're allowed to directly quote when you yourself cannot possibly think of a better way of saying it. Not always the case. Mm. Here? the case. Yeah, I don't think I can. I don't think I can say things better than James Baldwin. Quote, Fani had found something that he could do, that he wanted to do, and this saved him from the death that was waiting to overtake the children of our age. Though the death took many forms, though people died early in many different ways, the death itself was very simple, and the cause was simple too. As simple as the plague. The kids had been told that they weren't worth shit, and everything they saw around them proved it. They struggled. They struggled, but they fell like flies, and they congregated on the garbage heaps of their lives like flies. Now, this doesn't sound like something a 19-year-old is going to say, as I've said before, but you're too busy reading it being like, fuck, dude, to really care all that much. So at some point, they have this sort of realization about each other, where Tish says that she had never thought about Fawny's sex. It just had never occurred to her. They were sort of so comfortable with each other that it was taken for granted, is how she puts it. And then one day, it just occurs to them, like, huh, Fawny's got a dick. Huh, Tish's got a vagina, I guess. Maybe we should do something with those. Maybe she should just <laughs> lay down. And I come to God. <laughs> and yeah, she just is like, I never really thought about Fawny's junk. She always calls it his sex. At no point in this book is the dick called a dick. It's always called a sex, which is really weird. I have never come across that ever. And it's especially jarring, like, because he talks about when they have sex for the first time. And, you know, like, she says stuff like, I could feel his sex, like, I get stiffening against my leg. <laughs> you know, I felt his sex entering me. It's just odd. I've, ne I've never encountered that, uh bit of linguistic idiosyncrasy. Yeah, give me your hot, hot sex. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think they're talking That's about... That's the pinnacle of art right there. That song? Yeah? You talked about it on the show before. Yeah, CCS. Yeah. Or CSS. What? A, CSS, CSS Photoshop. <laughs> CSS. Yeah. Music is my hot, hot sex. Yes. Give it to me. It's my penis. <laughs> Music is my hot, hot penis indeed. So, I got another quote. Quote, it's astounding the first time you realize that a stranger has a body. The realization that he has a body makes him a stranger. It means that you have a body too. You will live with this forever and it will spell out the language of your life. So Tish kind of goes out on a, a date with Vani and 
the whole night she knows is leading up to like they're gonna go back to this place they're gonna have sex and it's a very fraught section like outside of her head they're just like walking in a park and like it's kind of nice but inside of her head is like turmoil she's kind of having this transformation into an adult she's seeing the world through adult eyes she's thinking about you know that she's going to do this sort of very adult thing like it hits her all at once that like i'm a virgin i have never been interested in anyone sexually before but she isn't funny and she doesn't really know how to feel about that and it's just kind of a lot happening to her emotionally all at once and I gotta give credit that Baldwin does a really good, this gay dude does a really good job writing in that perspective in the voice of a teenage girl. And just generally, it's, it's, he's very successful at narrating as a woman, with the exception of like, oh, there are a couple sections where uh, Tish talks about like the relationships between men and women and occupying male and female spheres where it's just like, this was written by a dude. But otherwise, like, it's pretty good. At no point does anyone walk <laughs> breastily downstairs or whatever. Like, what? Like, she she bounced chestily down the 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 staircase or whatever the fuck. <laughs> the bar is so so low. So they uh, they go to the village in New York. Um, they go to a Spanish restaurant where Fanny is a, a regular, and it's a really cute scene there. The the waiters and the staff are all like really friendly with him, and she talks about how once Fanny is in prison that they help her out a lot. Like they drive her there, they let her eat there for free, and like they're just really supportive of her. And it's another example of like this sort of community support system thing. This optimism in the the face of potential tragedy and she talks about how she's never seen Fawny outside the context of like their neighborhood or him in her house and things like that then we get to when they get to his apartment and they go to have sex and it's kind of weird because even at like like it's consensual that's the biggest thing because before they start he's like you know are you okay with this like it's okay we're gonna get used to each other like there's never a point where it feels like it is she she's not consenting to the experience but like you're in her head the whole time and it's kind of like she's kind of fucked up about it because she's just like oh this hurts wait maybe it doesn't hurt oh i don't know about this oh i don't like this oh but maybe i do like this like it's not until it's over that she decides like yeah all right that was pretty cool it's just weird and intense and also there's just a lot of talk about um blood blood and semen and it's it's just it's just a lot it's not like a tender like love thing it's just kind of like it's real i guess the real world version i suppose but more mtv reading it is very less lifetime (laughs) reading it is very fraught because she just feels a lot of things both physically and mentally (laughs) and then so basically the next morning you know, he says to her, like, I'm, I'm a sculptor. I'm not going to be able to give you much in this life, but I love you. Uh, let's maybe get married. And so he takes her home and her parents are just like, you know, what the fuck? Like, you've been out all night with a boy. And Fonny's just like, we want to get married. And their parents are like, well, I guess. Why not? You're 19 and 22. Why not? And so after we get this, Tish and Sharon, her mom, go to see Fonny's lawyer, Mr. Hayward. Hayward is a, a young white boy with a college degree, as the, her dad derisively says many times. And Ernestine is the one who got him to uh, take the case. 
because she works as an advocate for, like, neglected children, so she runs into a lot of lawyers and stuff. And so Hayward explains that... I'm probably getting, like, the chronology a little bit fucked here because it jumps back and forth a lot. But essentially, Fanny has been accused of raping a woman named Victoria Rogers, who's Puerto Rican, and... He did not do the thing. It is geographic. They point out it's geographically impossible for him to have done the thing because it happened on one street that's like at one end of like the fucking city while he was at the other end of the city. And so for it to have worked, he would have had to have literally run entirely across town being chased by police based on what this cop is claiming. And it's it's just not fucking possible. Not that that matters. Maybe he had a really big penis. Yeah, he did it all the way from across town. Yep, it snaked its way over. Ew. And so, obviously, Tish can testify to that, but Hayward says, you know, that doesn't matter. And then the other person who was with them, their friend Daniel, his testimony doesn't matter either because they arrested him. They picked him up on, like, a random, like, drug charge, um, and he's also been arrested before, but we'll get into that in a little bit. And so the testimony that really matters here is Victoria Rogers's, and she's run away from the U.S., most likely to Puerto Rico. And he's saying, you know, uh, Hayward's like, okay, we're, I can send, like, a detective to try and find her, but it's gonna cost money, and they don't have a lot of that. It's not great. And so it's just, it's just bad. And, and Tish starts crying and there's this kind of sweet little scene where like Hayward tells her to, to stop crying because he's like, I have to go talk to Fawny and he always asks about you. And, and when I say that you're doing fine, you know, I don't want to be a liar. He's like, so, you know, buck up. And so then Tish takes us back in time again and talks about Fawny and Daniel reconnecting and that this was uh, right after Daniel was in prison for two years. He comes over to the house, he explains that, and then he got picked up for stealing a car, except as he points out, he doesn't even know how to drive a car. And what it actually was, was that he had marijuana on him. So they picked him up for drugs, and then as he tells it, a car was stolen, they needed a car thief, he was there. He's like, so he's like, I've never, they, when they picked me up for or stealing a car that I've never seen before, and I've never seen since, and he talks about Basically how awful it was in prison, and it's very emotionally affecting. He, like, breaks down crying and talks about how awful it is and that he was raped in prison. And I think it's, again, like, obviously we are critiquing the inherent institutionalized racism of the justice system, but we also have two men being very emotionally open and vulnerable with each other and crying and comforting each other. And I think that's pretty important as well. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's rare. It is. And, you know, I mean, Baldwin is very clear in his intent. Uh, Fawny tries to say, like, you're out now. It's over. You know, you're free. You're still a young man. Like, he's only 23. He's like, you know, you could still live your life. And Daniel's like, this has fucked me up for the rest of my life, my dude. Which, of course, is meant to make the reader be like, oh, God, because we know that right now Fawny is in jail. And, yeah, so everybody's pretty much upset, but they try to be supportive and Sharon, Tish's mom, keeps reiterating that, like, yes, things suck right now, but, like, you have to be strong because you're carrying the baby. Like, you are carrying the weight of the next generation. No pressure or anything. And, uh, speaking of, of pressure, Tish starts to really feel the weight of that future generation. Her pregnancy is not romanticized. 
It sucks. She gets morning sickness all the time. She's puking. The baby's always kicking and making her drop shit. Oh, but I bet she was glowing. <laughs> no, she's miserable. Uh, she describes it as like having a dialogue with the baby where it's just like, you fucking asshole. And the baby's just like, bitch, say it again. I'm gonna kick you one more time. And that just when like, She's feeling like they'll, they'll, uh, like the baby will be quiet for a while and she'll be like, okay, maybe it's good now. And the baby's like, bitch, you thought I'll kick you again. And we get this interesting idea of where she sort of contemplates like ownership of like, do I own this thing that's growing inside of me or does it own me? Because it's kicking my ass. As uh, someone who's uh, terrified of pregnancy and doesn't plan on ever becoming pregnant, this just serves to like continue to solidify like, mm, nope. Uh-uh. As someone who plans to become pregnant, I'm going to put that damn baby in its place. Yeah? Yeah, you hit me, I hit you harder. That's not how pregnancy works. Shut the fuck, baby. What the fuck, dude? Yeah. <laughs> Good lord. I'll get him. I'll put headphones on my tummy. I'll put Papa Roach on my tummy. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> that kid's going to come out emo as shit. So, one day, Ernestine takes Tish... For uh, out for a drink, it, it, I gotta say, I mean, obviously this takes place in the seventies. Throughout her entire pregnancy, Tish drinks and smokes and is encouraged to. Like her parents are like, "Have a brandy, like it'll settle you. It's good for the baby. Have some brandy." It's the sixties, right? I know it was, it was a different it was a different time, but it's still just like, don't do that. So she takes Tish for a drink and she breaks the news that Mrs. Rogers has been located is definitely in Puerto Rico and. Someone needs to go find her and be like, you need to tell the truth. Like, you need to come back to the United States and you need to tell people that Fonny didn't rape you. And she says, like, you know, who's well, who's going to do that? Like, Tish points out, like, I'm pregnant as hell. And she says, well, it can't be Hayward because he's dealing with Officer Bell, the racist ass police officer who corroborated the story and said he saw Fonny running away from the scene of the crime and that it needs to be their mom that she needs to be the one to go. And then we get this sort of conversation about, because this is what's interesting, is that we know that Victoria is lying about who raped her, but there's never any sort of contesting whether or not she was raped, which I think is interesting, that there's no, like, they don't think it's a thing of that she was, like, coerced into saying that she was just raped at all. Like, they believe, like, she was definitely raped, but, like, Ernestine says, like, she probably has no idea who her rapist was, and it was just sort of easier for her to, that they put Fonny in front of her and it was easier for her to just say, yep, that was him. So that she could sort of try to like mentally close the book on what was probably a horrendous experience and try to move on. And I think it's interesting the way the book kind of contends with that, that it's like this woman was absolutely like traumatized in a very real and terrible way. And that her committing this act, which is also terrible, is, you know, like her just kind of trying to exert some kind of control over the situation. Trying to bring closure. Yeah. I just think it's an interesting angle to take because it would be really easy to demonize her as much as we're, you know, demonizing the... I mean, when I say demonizing the police officer, we're not really demonizing him. He's a horrible person. We find out later he... I uh, was previously in trouble for murdering a, a 12-year-old black child, which, gosh, isn't it great that that doesn't happen anymore? That that's a, a relic of times gone by? I was going to say, I mean, the whole idea of woman, uh, yeah, she was raped, but obviously wrong about her accuser. That just played out last year, man. 
national TV. Oh, God, yeah. Jeez. We didn't doubt she was raped. Just wasn't that white guy. It was the other Devil's Triangle man. Hey. He had a calendar. Uh, he had a calendar. And you know what he didn't put on the calendar? Go rape. Get, go rape this woman. And did they look at Fonny's calendar? Uh, uh, he made a mistake. He didn't keep one, huh? Nope. He also wasn't a uh, white Supreme Court justice, so. How about you? I keep my calendars. You know what I wrote down for today? Kept my sex in my pants. You keep that. You keep that sex away. And uh, so Ernestine says it's over for her. If she changes her testimony, she'll go mad. But that she thinks that they could work on Officer Bell because of that thing that he, he murdered a black boy several years ago. And also, she's going to have the boy's mother and Bell's wife, who apparently hates him, attend the trial in the hopes of frazzling him and ruining his credibility. Because Ernestine is just always fucking thinking. She's always on the ball. Girl is on task. So because she's doing that, she's like, all right, we got to send mom to Puerto Rico. In the meantime, Joseph and Frank are also trying to be helpful by trying to, you know, because they need money because they got to keep paying the lawyer and stuff. So they start stealing from their jobs and selling the goods in Harlem to try to raise money to pay for these legal fees and to get Sharon to Puerto Rico. So Sharon goes to Puerto Rico and it's intense. She's a single middle-aged black woman alone in a country where she does not speak the language and American Spanish and we take a pretty sharp turn from like the main action and we're in her head for it I mean obviously it's still Tish narrating but you know this is this is Sharon's time now and she has to be very clever and wily and she depends on this like 18 year old boy to drive around everywhere she goes to this nightclub where Sharon and the man that she's living with now have said to be seen, and she meets up with the man uh, whose last name's Alvarez, and they have this whole conversation where she shows him, like, a photograph of Fani, and she's like, you know, you need to tell me where Victoria is. You need to bring me to her. And he's just like, I don't know her. I don't know that. I don't know this. And she's like, look at my fucking eyes. Do I look like I am fucking around, dude? This is my, this is my, like, son-in-law. He's a, I'm about to be a grandmother. He is in prison for something he didn't do. And she's like, do you think that I am lying to you? And he's like, no. And she's like, do you think I have come here to purposefully ruin anyone's life? And he's like, no. And she's like, you fucking take me to Victoria. And he goes, no. But she eventually finds her through other means and confronts her. And it's also very intense. And, you know, we have this conversation where she's like, I think, what is it she says? That she's like, I was a woman long before you were a woman and don't you forget that. And Victoria is just like, yes, but you were never raped. And she refuses to change her testimony even after the, the very intense conversation and she starts screaming and all of these locals come to sort of protect her and push Sharon out. And Sharon, unfortunately, has to go back home unsuccessful in her endeavors. A very bad vacation to Puerto Rico. <laughs> Maybe she hit the beach, you know, they left that out. (laughs) They left out the part where after she fails to convince the woman responsible for falsely imprisoning her, essentially her son-in-law, she just, you know, she chilled out on the beach for a bit. She got like a daiquiri, just caught some sun. This happens. Yeah. Uh, And then we find out shortly thereafter that Victoria's reported to have been pregnant, had a miscarriage, gone crazy, and disappeared into the mountains. Like, that is how it's phrased. She disappeared into the mountains, never to be heard from again. So the prosecution has lost its main witness, which is an issue. 
So they keep moving the trial date around. They keep trying to postpone for more time, which is obviously bad for Fawny because he's fucking stuck in prison. File a motion for Speedy, man. Got it. We got a constitutional right for Speedy trial. Yeah, well. Trial that motion. <laughs> you got to be brought. Oh, maybe you should have been his lawyer. Oh, man. If I was his lawyer, we would have won a long time ago. But you're so I have done case right here. But unfortunately, you're not. Make her, make her describe that penis. God. Unfortunately, you uh, are not his lawyer. And he sits in prison in a weird sort of limbo. And he's just miserable. He tries to, like, think about Tish to give him strength. But then he tries to not think about Tish because it just makes him even more upset. We get to watch him jerk off in his prison cot. And it is possibly the saddest and most tragic masturbation scene in literature. And I don't even mean it when I say sad, like, this is just sad, like, like a sad old man masturbating, but like, it's just weird. I don't, how do I describe it? It's like emotionally damaging because you're just like, oh my God, because he isn't even enjoying it. It's sort of happening automatically. He kind of really doesn't even want to because he's like, I don't want to associate prison and coming. If you ain't coming, you're dying. Get busy coming or get busy dying. That's right. I believe that was the line from the movie. Look, man, if I had Tim Robbins to look at, I'd jerk off all day, too. Yeah, well, unfortunately, Fonny does not have a Morgan Freeman or a Tim Robbins to help escape through a sewer or whatever it is that happens in Shawshank Redemption. They don't get a boat together. So, finally, we get to the, uh... Get busy jerking, (laughs) you'll get busy coming. Great. Thank you. Fantastic. (laughs) Where's the weirdest place you've masturbated, Meg? (laughs) I am not answering that question. Not a prison. There you go. Well, where's the weirdest place you <laughs> masturbated, RJ? Not prison. There you go. As far as I remember. <laughs> so we get to the thing that is responsible for sort of kickstarting all of these events. So it was on a day where Fonny and Tish finally managed to successfully find a loft that they'd been looking for a place to rent together. And as a, as a black couple, they had been very unsuccessful, but they finally find one. It's rented to them by a Jewish guy named Levy and... They're like even a little apprehensive, like, what's the catch? Why are you doing this? And he's like, I just love love, man. Uh, you two are so clearly in love, and I want you to love each other and make a lot of babies. Because love. Repopulate the earth. And they're just like, all right, neat. Thanks, dude. And so they're, they're so excited, and they're celebrating, and you're just sitting there like, oh, God, oh, God, what's going to happen? Oh, no. And so they're they're walking back down the street in the evening and Tish stops at a little grocery store and Fonny like goes around the corner to go buy some cigarettes and she's looking at tomatoes and this weird little white dude starts harassing Tish and is just like hey and just say he's Italian like an Italian guy and he's like hey I love a tomato who loves tomatoes that's a good line <laughs> yep that's guaranteed and yet somehow it doesn't work and then he touches her butt and she's like no thank you and she starts you know, trying to move away from him. And he's just like, oh, my little sweet tomato, where are you going? And no one in the store is doing anything, she makes a, a point of saying. And so she keeps trying to leave. He grabs her arm. She slaps him and spits in his face. Fawny appears and throws the guy off her and beats the shit out of him. He grabs her arm. She spits in her face. Can I make it any more <laughs> obvious? <laughs> that I don't want you near me. He's a raper boy. She said, see you later, boy. And then her boyfriend beat the shit out of him. (laughs) And of course, it's at this point that Officer Bill, who was on the other side of the street, not paying much attention to anything, 
He's, is like, oh, hey, what do you think you're doing there? I'm gonna arrest you. You're gonna go to the police station. Uh, he even calls him, like, he's like, what are you doing, boy? And Tish is, like, kind of putting herself between them, and she's like, he's not a boy. And then the grocer, who's this old little Italian woman, steps in and is like, Fonny didn't do shit. Everybody saw that that guy was harassing Tish. Like, these two are in here all the time. Um, I will testify to it. Fuck you, pig. She's an awesome little old lady. And she saves the day. But Bill, you know, and of course is a vindictive and he says to Fonny, like, I'll be seeing you around. And Fonny's like, maybe you will. But then again, maybe you won't. Unfortunately, he will. And then that's why, you know, Bill sets Fonny up and gets him in prison for rape. So the trial keeps getting put off and it's it's not good. Finally, Hayward manages to have bail set for Fonny's release until the trial, but it is extremely high. And they're trying to do their best to kind of get the money together. But Frank, Fonny's dad, is just sort of so discouraged by this. And it doesn't help that his boss eventually discovers that he has been stealing and fires him. And then things happen very quickly. Tish gets a phone call from one of the sisters that's like, like, our dad is missing. Like, I know we hate each other. But dad's missing. Well, like, if you see him, like, is he around with you? Like, do you see him anywhere? And she's like, no, like, I, I don't know, but I'll let you know. And then she's delivered the news, like, almost immediately. Someone comes in. I don't remember. I think it's Sharon who's just like, hey, they found Frank uh, parked at the docks with all the windows shut in the car and the car running with the implication that he killed himself. And then Tish goes into labor, just like in that moment. Uh, it says, I opened my mouth to say, I don't know what. When I opened my mouth, I couldn't catch my breath. Everything disappeared, except my mother's eyes. An incredible intelligence charged the air between us. Then all I could see was Fawny. And then I screamed, and my time had come. Fawny is working on the wood, on the stone, whistling, smiling, and from far away but coming nearer, the baby cries and 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 cries. And cries, cries like it means to wake the dead. And that's the end of the fucking book. This bullshit. Nothing is resolved. We barely even get to see the baby being born. Like, is it okay? Is Tish okay? What's gonna happen to Fonny? I don't know. Book's over. Go home. It's like that song, Lightning Crashes. The old man dies and the baby's born. Implication is. Wait, what What song is that? Lightning Crashes. What? I don't know what the- Live. What? Live. Who? Live. You don't know Lightning Crashes? No. Wow. What are you talking about? That's a song. Hit song. 90s, baby. <laughs> Big song. Good uh, music video. Live. Live. Other 90s kids get what I'm saying. Trust I am me. a 90s kid. I don't know what the fuck you're saying. Uh, the whole music video is like this old bitch dies. This right, old... as, right, right as a baby's born. Because the soul of the old person goes in the young person. That's what happened in this book here. It's all happening at once. Wait, was Live that Christian band? I don't know if they were specifically Christian. Hey, hey, you! Is life Christian? Creed was kind of Christian. Well, Creed, no, Creed was extremely Christian. That wasn't kinda. Feeling, back again. Uh. Back a rolling. 
You didn't put the music video on it. Yeah, well, he, he suffers from a uh, Pearl Jam singer, Eddie Vedder disease. <laughs> I can feel it. A new mother cries. I have the lyrics in front of me. I don't know this. I don't know this fucking song. <laughs> anyway, just take my word for it. Okay. This is the end of the book here. Oh, wait. I think I know this song. I don't. I know one live song. Yeah, this one was like, I love you. Wow, that guy has a rat tail. Hey, maybe I know this song. 90s had such a distinctive, great sound. <laughs> anyway. Anyway. That's how the book ends, and it made me want to scream. It's not as bad. It is not as egregious as Atonement's ending. Where it's like, and it was all a lie. But the the lack of resolution, especially in the moment when I was so fucking invested in this book, I was reading an ebook. But if it had been a physical copy, I definitely would have thrown it. It would have been airborne. But I'm I'm not gonna throw my computer. I appreciate the ending. Well, we're gonna talk about how I feel about the ending now versus how I felt about the ending in the moment. Okay. (laughs) Because it's going to move us right into adaptations, which there is the one. There is the movie that came out last year, if Beale Street could talk. I believe it is the... Uh, 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 uh. What? 2018. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Shit. We're in 2020. Came out in 2018. The uh, movie was directed by Barry Jenkins, who famously directed Moonlight, another Oscar-winning film. and Which famously had... Mahershala. It does have Mahershala. Mahershala Ali means Oscars, baby. Unless it's Alita Battle Angel. (laughs) That's a different story. That's the Oscar of my heart. (laughs) Alita, you're a battle angel. I made you. Is that supposed to be Christoph Waltz? Yes. (laughs) Alita, you are the battle angel. (laughs) Yes. I look forward to the sequel. So, again, Barry Jenkins. Very good director. If you have not seen Moonlight, you should. It's a fucking fantastic movie. Also, filmed down here in South Florida. Represent. And this movie had everything going for it. It has a really good cast. Uh, Regina King won Best Supporting Actress for her role as as Sharon, the mom. Uh, The scene where she confronts Victoria in Puerto Rico is basically what got her that Oscar. It's a great fucking scene. It's very emotionally harrowing. And so it's... A beautifully shot movie. The score is also very beautiful, but it just doesn't work. It's slow. It's very slow. It meanders, it starts and stops. It was clearly meant to be a love letter to both the novel and James Baldwin. Most of the dialogue and Tish's narration is lifted verbatim from the book, which also doesn't quite translate. Like, it works in the novel because the novel does maintain this very dreamlike state and you can tell that the movie is going for that 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 uh, Barry Jenkins is absolutely trying to evoke that and he has a very dreamlike style we do see that in Moonlight and we do kind of see that here but it just doesn't really connect also everyone's really too everyone's too pretty Fonny especially like he's cute as hell and in the book Baldwin emphasizes that Fonny's not a particularly attractive dude he's missing teeth He's a uh, bow-legged. 
He's just kind of funky looking, but the idea is that he's beautiful to Tish. It's, you know, like when we get their first sex scene, it's very neutered and slow and boring and so much of this movie because he tries to sort of convey a lot of things just through body language and like everybody's doing a fine job it just doesn't really work actually i was i was scrolling through like imdb because i was looking at critics things because i was curious what they thought and there was actually a user on imdb who i thought summed it up really well so i'm gonna i'm gonna give him credit that their IMDb user burnt out because I'm, I'm going to quote them now where they say that Beale Street is an undeniably beautiful film that depicts the love between two astonishingly attractive people. And they say basically what I just said, that Fawny's not supposed to be attractive. Jenkins' interpretation turns Fawny and Tish into a Ken and Barbie-esque couple, undermining Baldwin's depiction of them existing in a realistic milieu. Taking a meditative approach to the material, Jenkins' adaptation never rings true. Whereas Baldwin's Tish and Fawny are flawed, contradictory, and relatable, Jenkins' protagonists are too perfect to be real, with every agonizingly serious pronouncement they make to one another. Everything they say, you know, because it's lifted from the book, is very portentous and heavy and weighted. It pushes them further and further away from connecting with the audience on an emotional level. They, you know, because they don't sound like people, and that kind of works in the book, not so much in the movie. Also, the movie is kind of a neutered version. It leaves out, like, that whole fucking speech that I read about Ernestine, where she says all that really wild shit. It leaves off that thing Tish says about God. It cuts out a lot more interactions with Officer Bell and with Hayward. It's weird. For all that it cuts, it just feels like a really long movie. It cuts when Mrs. Hunt takes them to church. Like, the only scene we see Mrs. Hunt is when they're talking about announcing that, you know, Tish is pregnant. But the biggest thing is that the movie adds a different ending. Uh, RJ went and saw this movie before I saw it. I watched it after reading the book for the show. He'd seen it in theaters before that. So you saw the movie ending before you were aware of the book ending. So I don't know if you want to talk about the movie ending. One thing I'll say about the movie is, well, I agree, it is slow. It does not move very fast. It does have its negative points. It's one of those things where I still think it's important in what it does that there are not many films where you have your positive representation of a black couple having black love on screen, no less. And I think it captures that well. That's that's what's frustrating. It's not a bad movie. (laughs) Part of a movie is it has less time and less space and less ability to do things that a book can. As for the ending, I do like the ending in the book where it kind of just ends in a few sentences that like the falling action just falls and there really is no resolution. But so we didn't say what the movie ending is. I was kind of let you do that. (laughs) So in the movie... Instead of it all just kind of ending, the baby is born. The baby is born Alfonso, right? Alonzo. Alonzo. Alonzo after Fani. And a few years pass that we see Tish bring the baby who seems to be like three-ish. Yeah, I would say like three. To visit Fani, who we find out has pled to the case just so he knows like at some point he is going to get out. And so that it just ends that drama at some point. That there's the light at the end of the tunnel. And they kind of have like a makeshift family dinner there. And it shows like, hey, you know what? Situation sucks. But it's kind of working. And the kid's happy. The kid loves both of them. Like making drawings for Fani. It's like, look, dad, I drew you. And so it kind of like 
pushes the the positive side of it, right? That despite all the bad circumstances, in the end, it's going to be okay. It's going to work out. I appreciate the book more with the ending because you got to figure it out yourself. More postmodern that way, which I like that kind of writing where you're there in their life and you don't know exactly how it's going to end. It's kind of like music, right? That That's the one interesting thing that I think why it's weird the movie ends the way it does because the framing of the movie that it opens with a Baldwin quote all about how in Beale Street there's noise, there's sound, there's always something going on, right? That like life moves to a beat and you got to figure out the beat, you know, to like kind of enjoy it. And in the book, the way it ends, right? Like the music, it builds, it builds, it builds, and end of the track, right? It stops. You don't have a resolution. The movie decides, well, we got to give one, which I don't like. Yeah, after watching the movie, it, like as as much as the book ending made me be like, no, what the fuck? The movie ending made me appreciate the book ending more because yeah, it feels very tacked on. It feels like okay, we have to give people something, but we can't just have it like Fawny gets out of jail and everything's great. You know that they they do try to keep it within like the world of realism, but it's also like there's this cute little kid and they're gonna go eat their food, but first he's like, we gotta say grace, and he makes them all hold hands. Which is also interesting because in the book, again, Mrs. Hunt and her religion is set up as, you know, extremely negative. Tish and Fawny don't really have a a strong religious relationship at all. Tish seems to have a pretty negative relationship with God in general. So I think it's interesting also that in this version, they're still just like, hey, we, we still love God, just not in the bad way. But yeah, so I, I like what you said, comparing it to a song. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. But also that the ambiguity does leave the reader, you know, to explore their own the possibilities in their head and kind of make their own ending for Tish and Fonny and the baby and everybody. And yeah, I ended up coming around on that and preferring the ambiguity over trying to just sort of tack on an ending to it. And so that brings us to the point of the show that we always have to get to, and that is, hey, RJ. What's up? If Beale Street could talk, good, bad, Beale-y? Well, the characters of Beale Street seem more well-rounded than those I find on Sesame Street. It's pretty close. (laughs) Jesus Christ. You know, Big Bird and Snuffleupagus, Oscar, they go through a lot, and I feel for them in different ways at different times. Here in Beale Street, I think we're tackling more universal truths, deeper truths, truths that may be hiding in your closet and you don't want to look at. Big Bird tackles the letter A. That's not hard-hitting journalism. Therefore, Beale Street, better than Sesame Street. At me. Hot takes. Hey, Megan. Yeah, RJ? If Beale Street could talk. Who knows what it might say. Ring-a-ding-ding, good, bad, or otherwise. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I think it's fairly obvious. I really fucking liked this book. Um, I need to go read more James Baldwin. It's just a beautiful lyrical novel that kind of floats along, but also presents a very sharp depiction of institutionalized racism that is tragically prescient to the modern day, but ultimately, you know, still a strong story of love and optimism in the face of a bleak future. And it's it's not very long. It's a pretty short book. I absolutely recommend reading it. And this is something I should have gotten to way earlier. But yes, good. Really good. We had a hard time doing the jokes on this one because mostly it was like, wow, this book's really good. 
And that'll about do it for this episode of Ono oh Class. If you enjoy the show, then let us know. Subscribe, leave us ratings, reviews, spread the word, tell your friends, tell your family, tell Beale Street, tell, tell your own street. And then maybe if your street could talk, it would say, man, I really enjoy Ono oh Class. It's a great show. You can follow us on Twitter at Pod. You can like us on Facebook. You can join our membership on patreon.com slash Buy yourself some sweet merch at onolickclass.threadless.com. All these links are available at onolickclass.com. Can't think of anything else. That's it. Yeah. So the next episode will be... Oh, yeah, the next episode is going to be special. Do you know why it's going to be special, RJ? I hold out very little hope for you knowing these things, but I think, you know, maybe someday. Got Jimmy G coming on the show. No. How? In what world? In my dreams. You dream about Jimmy Garofalo? It's not Garofalo. Garofalo. That's Janine. Janine Garofalo. She's out there playing football. It's our anniversary. There you go. February 13th is the next episode. It is the three-year anniversary of Oh No Lit Class. Holy shit. Uh, And we'll be doing a special episode that was voted on by our patrons. But until then, I'm Megan. I'm RJ. We love you. Goodbye. If Beale Street Could Talk was the first Baldwin novel, or blah, blah, blah. If Beale Street Could Talk is significant, or, hmm, let me phrase it differently. Beale Street, ah, god damn it. Good thing you wrote a script. I did.